alcohol and uh, things that come to mind. Not a whole lot, no. Uh, Polish sausages? No, I don't know anything about that country. <laughs> Pierogies? Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. Podcast, Paul and all that jazz. Hello, I'm Małgorzata Bonikowska. And I'm Tomek Kniat. Welcome to the 39th episode of Podcast. This is the first of our monthly episodes. From now on, we will be releasing Podcast every four weeks. In this episode, we will tell you how a Canadian Jew returned to his native Poland after 75 years. Why a Polish runner is running 1,600 kilometers from Canadian Yukon to Alaska. How a non-Pole got fascinated with World War II history and what this fascination resulted in. Was Christopher Columbus Polish? Smacznego! We're here talking about our love for eating Polish. My name is Peter. And my name is Laura. And we wrote two Heritage Polish cookbooks called Classic Polish Recipes and Classic Polish Desserts, where all the recipes have been handed down from previous generations. But updated for modern kitchens, so no more pinch of this or glass of that. Of all the great Polish pastries, puszczyki or favorki, or in English, angel wings or crullers, are among the best known wherever Poles live around the globe, and there are 60 million of us. These sweet, crispy, fried cookies are impossible to put down. They're always sold at every Polish church festival and in even some American grocery stores. But the commercial ones are too thick and is not as good as the homemade. In Poland, they are traditionally served between Christmas and Lent, the time of the year called Karnival, when all the best dances and parties take place. But we also heard that it's a tradition for husbands to give hruszczyki to their wives on Friday, on Friday, February the 13th, in order to avoid bad luck. Really? In Polish, the word hrust means dry branches broken off trees. So it follows that these delicate fried cookies can resemble little twigs. There are many recipe variations depending on how you flavor the dough, but a post-World War II recipe from Krakow is our favorite. It was given to my mom by an excellent baker from Krakow. She probably got it from her babcha and so on. The dough is made with egg yolks, flour, baking powder, sugar, sour cream, both lemon juice and lemon zest, and a little vanilla. Here's a tip. Adding a tablespoon of vodka or rum to the mix prevents the cookies from absorbing too much oil while they're frying. Of course, in our kitchen, that means a shot for the baker, a shot for the baker's helper, and then a shot for the cookies. So if you have a standing mixer, use your dough hook to create the dough ball, then knead it by hand for about 10 minutes. Cut the ball into smaller sections and roll them out until very, very thin. Cut the dough in four-inch strips, make a small slit, and pull one end of the strip through the slit to make their famous twist. Fry at 375 degrees for 
until golden. Drain on paper towels and generously sprinkle with powdered sugar before serving. They don't freeze very well, but you can store them in an airtight container for a day or so. Any longer, and they tend to lose their crispiness. But that's not a problem because it is absolutely impossible to eat just one. The full recipe for these cookies and information about our heritage cookbooks is on our website, www.polishclassiccooking.com. Just look for our newest post, dated January 24th, 17. Smacznego! And you just told me how incredibly popular that post was, right? Well, that particular post, within 24 hours after we put it up, got over 4,000 views around the globe and more than 2,000 hits on our website of folks looking for the recipe. So that means it will be a big hit with everybody. Everybody should try it. Absolutely. We encourage you to visit our partner online magazine, Cosmopolitan Review, cosmopolitanreview.com, devoted to things Polish in English, which just recently posted its editor-in-chief Irene Tomaszewski's review of the most recent novel by Ewa Stachniak, a renowned Canadian novelist, immigrant from Poland, the author of four bestsellers. The Chosen Maiden, published in January, is already on bestseller lists and is getting rave reviews. Not much is known in the world about the history of Poland. As our next interlocutor says, everyone has heard of the Holocaust, but almost no one knows about the fate of Poland during World War II, attacked by two enemies, Germans and Soviets, and the heroism of many of its people, for example, Polish pilots in the Battle of Britain, Żegota, clandestine organization helping the Jews, the massive underground state, heroes letting themselves be imprisoned at Auschwitz to report on the massacres and trying to inform the world about the horrors inflicted by the Germans on the Polish Jewry. When a Pole makes it his or her mission to tell the world about these unknown heroes and facts, that's not that surprising. But when it's not a Pole... Terry Tegnesian is an American who has founded a very successful independent publishing house, Aquila Polonica, meaning White Eagle in Latin, which publishes high-quality books in English about the Polish World War II experience. We reach Terry in Los Angeles. So a Los Angeles lawyer working with the film industry decides to set up a publishing house and specializing in what World War II history of Poland? I can't believe this. You're not even Polish. Why did this no, happen? No. I am not Polish. Actually, my own background is Armenian. All four of my grandparents um, were actually survived through the Turkish massacres in 1915 and ended up in, in America. And frankly, if you had said to me, you know, 15 years ago that you would end up starting a, pol a publishing company about Poland in World War II, I would have said, why? I don't know anything about it. I'm not interested in it. I'm not, pol you know, I have no interest in this. But you know, life is funny. And I have to say, you know, step by step, it was almost like I was being led by the hand to do this. And, you know, it started out, I was doing film finance work as a lawyer, which I did for 12 years in private practice here in Los Angeles. And basically, I burned out doing that and thought I wanted to be a film producer, did one film with a partner in New York. And 
decided I didn't love it enough, but I, I really enjoyed the writing, uh, the script, you know, the script analysis and the story conferences. So I thought I would start writing. And so I was working on a novel that had a World War II backstory. I had made the heroine's grandfather an American fighter pilot and his sidekick which uh, somewhere and, and Margaret here is the here's like the first hand of God somewhere <laughs> I'd heard about these Polish fighter pilots being these super ace pilots that help save England in the Battle of Britain and honestly I don't even know where I heard about that so that was in the back of my mind I thought well maybe I'll make this character a Polish fighter pilot that might be kind of interesting and I didn't know anything about it so I went over to UCLA and I just started reading about Poland in World War II in the in the library and I was reading the memoirs of the key resistance leaders Bor Komorowski and Anders and you know Jan Novak Karski and I'm reading these things I'm going wow I had no idea what an amazing story honestly I didn't even know Poland had a resistance because we never heard about it. All we ever heard about really was the Holocaust. And so that was the kind of the beginning thing. And, and it's actually a very long story because I certainly did not start out to form a, a publishing company. But one of the key elements uh, along the way was um, my husband and I went on a trip to Poland, our first trip to Poland, and it was I was there really to research some more for the novel. And I had called ahead to the concierge at the Bristol Hotel and asked him to arrange a guide and a translator for us because we'd never been. And this lady came. She was in her, I would say, early 60s with two books under her arm. And she said to me, I want to thank you for this assignment. She said, I knew none of this. She said, when we were growing up, uh, it, we were taught it was the communist resistance that saved Poland from the Nazis and that the AK guys were clowns. That, and I literally got goosebumps thinking, wow, here is somebody that doesn't know their own history because of propaganda. You know, it, it's not so surprising that Americans don't know the history if even some Poles don't know. Now, she would have grown up, she probably, she may have been born during the war or shortly thereafter, and so would have grown up pretty much in the post-war communist era. And subsequently, I asked the Polish Consul General here in Los Angeles, Paulina Kapuscinska, I was telling her this, and she said to me, well, you have to understand that uh, that's what we were taught in school, but at home we learned the truth. So the next time we went to Poland, I asked this translator, I said, Jadwiga, I don't really understand how you could not know. She goes, oh, well, Terry, my family was pe were peasants out in the country. Nobody was in the underground. Nobody knew anything about what was going on. So we only knew what we were told. So now certainly, you know, things have really changed in Poland, and, and it's, you know, this knowledge is even more available and celebrated even. So that was, a, that was an important step for me to understand that this may be a kind of a mission that needed to happen. Certainly in English, it's not known. And, and honestly, I was really drawn to the, to the Poles because they were so heroic and they never gave up. And it's such an injustice that their work is not better known, that their position as one of our allies, one of the Western allies, in fact, the first ally to fight Hitler, is not better appreciated and only and the only ally to have been invaded by two enemies by Germany and by the Soviet Union. And why do you think that is so? My belief is 
that in order to control Poland after the war, because uh, Stalin knew that the Poles didn't want to be taken over by the communists any more than they wanted to be taken over by the Nazis. And in order to control the country, he actually mounted a two-part strategy. One was physical terror to arrest torture, execute, and deport to Siberia anyone he thought capable of resisting the communist takeover, which which basically meant anybody that had served in the underground or that had fought in the Polish forces in the West. Uh, the second part of his strategy was basically propaganda to spread disinformation, lies, distortions of the truth in order to um, minimize the international sympathy for the independent Poles, you know, both internationally and frankly within the country also as a way of controlling the populace through spreading an alternate reality, an alternate set of facts as we are hearing now in the United States. Yes, but despite the fall of communism in 1989, not much has changed really. I mean, those stories don't get through. Some of them do, but very, very rarely and very few. Yeah. Well, M Margaret, some of the issue is how is the story presented to the English-speaking world? Like for me, not being Polish, I was hooked by the heroism of the Poles. And I, you know, delved into it more. I wanted to know more about it. And so my goal in our books is to present the story in a way that will be accessible to English-speaking people today. And honestly, I don't think there's a lot of that going on. What ways of showing those stories yes. you would call accessible? You know, we're small, and so we don't do a lot of books. Uh, I try and be very uh, careful about uh, what books we do publish. The story has to be, be well-written, number one, and one that will draw the person through the story. And then secondarily, what we do with our books is also use a lot of photographs, images, maps. We often include appendices and a section called Historical Horizon, which gives historical context, yeah, to wh where this story fits in to the bigger picture. For example, when we did an Eng a new English translation of 303 Squadron, Division 303, we, we added a I don't, I don't remember how many, eight or nine appendices of additional information. I wrote an introduction to kind of set the stage. It was relatively short. And then a section at the end titled The Road to Britain for the Polish Air Force. Because most people, if you, you're saying, what are the Poles doing in Britain? Why are they flying in Britain right. with the RAF? How'd they get there? What's that all about? I wrote a, his, you know, kind of a, a section that kind of explained how they got there. For all of our books, we try and use photographs, um, put some historical context in, in the material, and also just graphically how the book is typeset, how the artwork is presented. We try and use what I call a lot of white space. In other words, you know, we set the book so that it's easy to read, just physically easy to read. And that's, you know, that's, I think, a big element. In The Color of Courage, which uh, by Julian Kulski was his wartime diary as a teenage uh, soldier in the in the Aka, we spent over a year researching and licensing historical film footage, and created eleven short videos. Uh, we have the original German newsreel of Hitler, the Victory Parade, uh, Hitler coming to Warsaw on October fifth, nineteen thirty nine. Uh, and we've created these 11 short videos. They're actually stored on YouTube, but they're unlisted. And you can access them if you buy the book. How many of these books have you already published? I think we have seven books and a DVD out. I'm working on the eighth book, a new edition of 
Joseph Garlinsky's classic book, Fighting Auschwitz, which is a bigger, broader view of the resistance organization among the prisoners in Auschwitz. Um, it starts off with Pilecki's report, but it goes beyond Pilecki because Pilecki escaped in April of 1943. He, Garlinsky did a ton of research. He himself was a prisoner at Auschwitz during the war. Uh, and so he had personal uh, understanding of, of the issues and wrote this book actually as his doctoral thesis in, at, in London in the early 1970s and then was persuaded or encouraged to pu have it published and it came out in English in 1975. I think it was first published in Polish in London in 74 and it's been out of print for 40 years so we're doing a new edition right now. We're working with his son Jarek. Do you find that most of these people who read the books that you publish are second, third generation Poles or, or not oh, necessarily? You know, okay, I'll tell you. Sometimes they're Polish or Polish background. Um, but often they're not. I had a, a call from a lady down south um, just a few weeks ago. She called me and said her 10-year-old son had read The Color of Courage and was so impressed and so in love with the book. And she wondered if it was possible for him to write to the author. And I thought that was so cute. I mean, they weren't Polish at all. You just don't only publish, because in order to sell, you need to do publicity. You need to have reviews. And I understand you actually get reviews yes, in, in, in mainstream media, which means that these stories get out. And even if somebody yes. doesn't read the book, they read the review, which also yes. in itself is a piece of information, it's a helpful. lot of knowledge. Yep. That's yep. right. How did this happen? I mean, this, how you did you what? establish all these co contacts? Margaret, that was just work. I mean, that was just slogging and sending stuff out and writing. I worked with, um, I work with a freelance publicist and she was terrific and just, you know, doggedly sending stuff out and following up. You know, we've, we've had great support from the Polish American and Canadian community, but that, that is a smaller audience. Obviously the mission here is to get the word out to the bigger uh, English-speaking world, not just the Polish. You know, we are distributed by one of the biggest independent book distributors in the country. What that means is I don't actually sell the books directly myself. They're available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, they're available through all the major wholesalers, um, Ingram and & Baker and & Taylor, uh, the library wholesalers like Follett. Uh, although I, I do want to establish a store on our website, we haven't done that yet. To learn more about Aquila Polonica and its publications, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. Friday the 13th is disliked by everyone, not just Poles. In some countries, such as Canada, number 13 is feared so much that there is no 13th floor in some buildings. Poles don't go that far but they have other things that they try to avoid at every cost. A black cat? Yes, one of the superstitions is that if a black cat crosses your road, you will be in trouble. I guess this doesn't apply to your home pets, because if you have a black cat and have to watch every step, that's no fun. Imagine a ladder. If you put it up, make sure you don't walk under it. That brings bad luck as well. One popular Polish superstition is connected to the way you greet your guest or your host greeting you when you come to a visit. Never shake hands over the threshold. Walk in and then give each other a handshake. Or a hug and three kisses. 
Cats and ladders are not the only ones that can bring bad luck. So can spilled salt. If you spill salt, there is going to be a fight in the family. Hundreds of years ago, salt used to be an expensive commodity, and people could not afford to spill it. If it happened, they believed the disaster was called by evil forces. Make sure you never break a mirror. That is bound to cause some mishaps. Despite the 21st century, many people hate to return home after going out to get something they forgot to take. If they have to return, they sit down and count from 1 to 10 and back. And finally, a superstition that doesn't mean bad luck. If you drop cutlery in the kitchen, it means someone unexpected may visit you. And one last superstition that doesn't apply anymore. Why not? Because there are no chimney sweeps walking the streets. In the old days in Poland, they wore uniforms and top hats. When you saw one, you were supposed to immediately grab a button and hold it for a while. This was supposed to secure good luck. Whether we truly believe in those superstitions or not, many of us use them in our everyday life. So beware of black cats, ladders, mirrors, thresholds and falling cutlery. You can ignore chimney sweeps because you won't meet them anymore. Seventy-five years is a long time. Imagine visiting a place where you were born and had to leave for the first time after so many years. Saul Neyman is a Polish Jew living in Toronto. He was a little boy when Poland was attacked by Nazi Germany in 1939. His family, in despair to survive, had no choice but to flee. They ended up in the Soviet Union and spent five years in inhumane conditions in a labor camp. Miraculously, they all survived. After the war, they all emigrated to Canada, where Saul had a very successful career and raised a wonderful family. Last year, he did what many people from his generation warned him against doing. He visited Poland for the very first time, going with his grandson on the annual March of the Living, when Jews from all over the world, mostly the youth, visit Poland and places where millions perished. In the story that you wrote about your life, titled Zadie's Story, uh, which you dedicated to your grandchildren, you said that you did not think that you were a real Holocaust survivor. Why was that? Well, essentially because we were not under the Nazi occupation. We managed to escape from Stoczek Wengrowski, where I was born, about 10 days after the Nazis invaded Poland and when our town was destroyed. So we were able to flee our town. We hid in the woods outside our town for a period of time. And then we uh, were told to move as quickly as we could, as far as we could. Uh, so we traveled northeast, and we ended up in Bialystok, which at that time, of course, was under the Soviet domain, based on the Hitler-Stalin agreement. And from there, when Stalin decided to ship as many people as he could, Jews and Poles, 
to the forced labor camps in Siberia and throughout the USSR, we left Bialystok. And I didn't feel that we went through what the Holocaust survivors whom we met after the war suffered. We met them in the DP camp in Betzlau after the war, when we found out for the first time about the death camps and the concentration camps, and when we met for the first time the survivors and saw their broken bodies, their spirits virtually destroyed, the numbers tattooed on their arms, we survived the Soviet Union, which was a very, very difficult five years. We didn't feel that we were survivors in the same genre as they were. Uh, we were not under Nazi occupation. I did not face Nazi soldiers. And that didn't change until such time as my wife and I visited the uh, Holocaust Memorial in Washington, uh, where I wanted to see if they had anything about our town. So I wrote down the notes, Dochek Bankurovsky, uh, Popyat Sokolov, and they showed us the memorial book, which our townspeople published in 1974, and also showed me on the map where the town was. I said, that's a mistake. That's not Stoczek Bengrosky, that's Stoczek Duchowski. Uh, so the person in the library said, well, how do you know that? I said, because I was there. I was born there. We, we survived the, the war in the Soviet Union. And he said, well, are you registered with us as a survivor? And I said, no, uh, I am not, because I didn't think I was a survivor. Well, he read to me the definition of survivor based on uh, the Washington Museum, and I acknowledged at that time, yes, indeed, I am a survivor. And that is what has compelled me to share my story, to pass on my memories, and to do whatever I can possibly to educate as many people as possible, regardless of their background, regardless of their religion, regardless of what they went through, to ensure that genocide, holocausts, are no longer part of the human history. And from that moment until last year, you never went back to Poland. I never did, and quite frankly, I didn't think I wanted to go back to Poland. I didn't know what I could add to Poland, and I didn't know what Poland could add to my life, to my uh, psyche. When my granddaughters went four years ago, and I think they went because they were inspired by the story that I wrote and dedicated to my grandchildren, which I called Zadie's story, um, I wanted to go with them. And they said, Zadie, you're too emotional. You cannot make this trip. And I didn't go. Then when my grandson decided to go last year, I said, I'm going with him and let my emotions emote. And I am very, very glad that I did go. You went on the March I, of the Living. As a participant in the March of the Living, uh, I was so inspired by eight other survivors who were on the march and the 200-plus students who were there. And the bond with the students was absolutely incredible. They were 
they were our, our rock, our strength, our, our support system. And I was so very pleasantly surprised and very happy to see Poland for the first time in, I guess, 75 years, to dis rediscover the Jewish life which had thrived for over a thousand years in Poland that was almost completely wiped out by the Nazis. But it is slowly and gradually and beautifully being restored. The restoration of some of the great synagogues, whether it's the Rama or the Temple Synagogue in Krakow or, or Chachmei Yeshiva in Lublin. The restoration of various monuments, the uh, the magnificent Poland Museum in Warsaw that so beautifully, beautifully and eloquently describes uh, the thousand-year history of Poland uh, was an incredible highlight for me. And that, to me, was a tremendous revelation uh, to see, uh, for example, in Krakow and Kazimierz, uh, Hasidic Jews walking the streets, uh, praying at the at the synagogue and, and at the at the cemetery, being able to walk freely throughout the streets without without any concern. I was re reminded of a comment from uh, Ambassador Marcin Bosatsky when we were talking about the safety or lack thereof in European cities. And he said that a Jew wearing a kippah is safer walking the streets of Warsaw or Krakow than walking the streets of Paris or Brussels or Malmo, Sweden. And he was absolutely right. We walk through the streets of Warsaw. We walk through uh, the streets of Krakow. The people who saw us, of course, we were wearing the March of the Living jackets and hats. So many smiled at us. So many said, Jin Dobrin. So many waved to us. It was very warm. It was very uh, heartfelt and very fulfilling. Uh, and that, to me, was a total, total change of what stories we've heard. You know, I've spoken to many people who said, why would you want to go back? What's there for you? Look what they did to us. But, <laughs> but other people did worse to us. There were, unfortunately, many Jews who also sold out their brethren, whether it was the Kapos or the, or the, or the others. Uh, you, you know, we, we, have, we have an interesting seminar. It's called Choiceless Choices. What kind of choices people made? They had no other choice. Like, uh, I, I think one of the leaders in Warsaw who was told he had to round up uh, 12 people in the morning to be shipped to a camp. Well, uh, and if you don't do it, you'll be killed. So he decided to take his life and the life of his family. It was a choiceless choice. And when we see uh, what so many martyrs did, what so many people did uh, to save Jews, to save Poles, to save children, uh, meeting the grandchildren of those righteous, and knowing that among the 25,000 plus righteous among the nations in Yad Vashem, the vast, vast majority were people from Poland. And we, we know about the pogroms in the Ukraine, and we know about the Einsatzgruppen uh, in Lithuania and Romania and Estonia, etc., etc., etc. Jews have not had a shortage of enemies, and neither did the Poles.
To the Nazis, the Poles were an inferior people, and the Nazis had no hesitation whatsoever to destroy as much of Poland as they could, and the, the Nazis felt it was perfect for them to establish the death camps in Poland. Why would they, why would they bloody their, their fatherland? That's not the main narrative that we hear, right? I mean, there's a lot of um, negative opinions about Poland still here. Why is this happening? And, and have you been able to change any of this through your experience or sharing of your experience? We realized that many people in Poland and throughout Europe during the war helped the Nazi invaders. There's no, no question about that. We know about the... Uh, centuries-old anti-Semitism throughout Europe and Poland, Ukraine, etc., etc. And yet, Poland was still the home of the largest number of Jews in the history. And what was so important to recognize is that many thousands of Poles saved countless Jewish lives and are enshrined in Yad Vashem as righteous among the nations. We know that so many Poles gave their lives to save Jews, and I know that there are 704 lives recorded of Poles who were executed by the Nazis for helping Jews. So uh, it's very important to, yes, remember and be concerned about what had happened, but it's even more important to look forward uh, we, we've celebrated the long history of Jews in Poland, and now I think it's right to celebrate the renaissance of Jewish life in Poland uh, and restoring the communities and the way of life. Will Poland ever have three million Jews? Of course not. But every Jew who is back in Poland counts for a very important link, not just with the past, but with the future. The March of the Living does not show disdain for Poland. There is not one statement in our book, Witness, that promotes anger, hatred, or revenge. And that's the true character of the students and survivors in the March of the Living. Uh, we know that what happened to the Polish people happened to us, and what happened to Jews happened to the Polish people. Um, so uh, I returned last year, and I plan to go again this year. Oh, that's great. And my mission is to ensure that our young people learn what Poland meant to Jews for centuries. The best summary of your first trip to Poland after 75 years was that letter that you wrote. This is a letter to Hitler. I was supposed to speak at the Chachmei Yeshiva in Lublin on May 9th. But I was told just before we left for Lublin that there was such a huge uh, number of buses going to that yeshiva that I would have to speak at Majdanek, the death camp, which is just outside Lublin. So on the, on the bus uh, to uh, Lublin, I decided to uh, draft on my BlackBerry passport a text, and it's addressed to Adolf Hitler, Reinhard Heydrich, and Adolf Eichmann. And the subject is the final solution. To you and every murdering Nazi in whichever hell you are, I have returned to Poland for the first time since we escaped in 1939, 
And I wanted to give you a status report on the final solution 75 years later. I started in Krakow Kazimierz and could not believe my eyes. Hasidic Jews in black suits and hats with long beards and payas walking around the town and praying at the cemetery. This looked like a scene from 1916, not 2016. In the evening, I and several hundred other Jews sang Hatikva in a synagogue. Can you believe this could possibly happen 75 years after the final solution? I came here with my grandson Maurice. Four generations after the final solution, he celebrated his 17th birthday and together with a number of Jews prayed in the lobby of a hotel in Poland. After you murdered six million of our people, I and thousands others from 40 countries took a stroll from Auschwitz to Birkenau, linking arms with several dozen survivors who will never forget or forgive you. Remember the kid from Buchenwald, Israel Mayor Lau? Well, he is chief rabbi of one of the largest cities in a country that did not exist when you did, but your buddy Eichmann was there once and never left. Yes, we Jews have our own country now, and it's not Madagascar where you thought we should be moved to. It's called Israel. Later, we will fly there on an airline called El Al. Can you believe the Jewish chutzpah, our own state, with our own airline? We also have a great air force and a superb army, the whole nine yards. So 75 years later, we have our own final solution. It's called Never Again. Just so you know, this is being sent from Lublin, where your pal Reinhardt set up the final solution headquarters. I was supposed to be at Chachmei Yeshiva, which your buddies looted and turned into a military police headquarters. You should see it now, more beautiful than ever and packed with Jews from all over the world. How does that grab you? I hope to return to Poland in the future and provide you with more updates to assure you that Jewry will be alive forever. All you need to know are three Hebrew words, Am Yisrael Chai, signed David Shlomor from Stoczek Mangrowski, one who got away. To read the full story of Saul's life, Zaidi's story, to hear some more of his observations and reflections, and to get more information about the March of the Living, please visit our website, mypodcast.com. On September 16, 2016, at the gorgeous Rose Theatre in Brampton, near Toronto, we were co-hosting a Canadian edition of the annual Polish Independence Concert, which we heard about on podcast from its creator, Polish-Canadian jazz vocalist and composer Ola Turkiewicz. The subject of this Canadian concert, titled Poland, was the Poles fighting for centuries all around the world for freedom ours and yours. Apart from beautiful music, the concert included interesting, often little-known stories, which were found and put into the concert script by Jacek Wiejski-Górski.
We have already presented one of them, of Murat Pasha, Field Marshal of the Ottoman Army, a Pole originally named Joseph Bem, Joseph Bem, a hero of several nations. We will draw on these stories from time to time. Here is another fascinating one. The first records of Poles fighting in foreign lands go back to the Second Crusade of 1147. King Władysław III of Poland, who was the last crusader of Europe, crowned at the age of 10, became the King of Hungary in 1440 as part of the Poland-Hungary Union. He was 16 years old. Three years later, he led a victorious military excursion against the Turks, which ended in a decade-long ceasefire. Soon, after getting a promise of support from the Pope, he broke the agreement and launched a new crusade. However, the help never came, and on November 11, 1444, the Polish-Hungarian army was defeated by the Turks in the Battle of Varna. The Turks paraded a spear with the king's head on it. But was it really his head? Shown later in Istanbul, it had blonde hair, while King Władysław was dark-haired. The king's body was never found. Poland and Europe long refused to acknowledge his death. The king's younger brother waited three years before he took over the throne. It was rumored that the king survived the battle and lived in hiding in Madeira to expiate the lost war and the broken agreement with the Turks. An even more sensational version is that of Portuguese historian Manuel Rosa, who claims that while in Madeira, the king fathered a son who later became known as Christopher Columbus. Rosa attempts to disprove Columbus' Genoa roots. What is the truth? The only way to find out would be through genetic analysis. The answer is buried in the grave of Władysław Jagiełło, the alleged grandfather of Christopher Columbus. Dogs have been the best and most loyal friends of humans for centuries, guarding, guiding them and helping in their work. One man from Poland, Michał Kiełbasiński, decided that it's time to say thank you to them. The way he chose to express this gratitude is very daring and dangerous, but that's the way Michał is. He loves adventure, challenge and extreme sports. Michał, who lives in the city of Łódź in Poland is an adventurer, racer and ultra runner, running several hundred kilometer super marathons. He is now in the Yukon Territory in Canada, the land of snow and cold, to run along the route of the world famous Yukon Quest, a dog sled competition, 1,000 miles from Whitehorse Yukon to Fairbanks, Alaska. He attempted this in 2015 with no charity goal then, but extremely low temperatures of nearly minus 50 degrees Celsius caused severe frostbite, and Michal landed in the Whitehorse Hospital. This time, in his project called Run Dog, for every kilometer he runs, people can donate money, which will help dogs in shelters in Poland. We reach Michal in Whitehorse, Yukon. Michal, you're in Whitehorse and you're getting ready for something that nobody has ever done before. You're going to be running a thousand miles. Why? Mm, I don't know if nobody didn't do this before, but some say someone has done it somewhere, somehow, but nobody knows who, when. Uh, so maybe I will be the first one. 
I want to run from Whitehurst in Yukon, Canada to Fairbanks, Alaska, using the Yukon Trail, uh, the trail of the adventurers, of the uh, hunters, of the old gold uh, miners, and the trail uh, which is now the path of the longest and the hardest dog sled race in the world. It's Yukon Quest. The difference between me and Mushers is that I will be the only uh, independent dog uh, human sled team and I will just run pulling my pulk with all the equipment with me. What is the weight of the things you'll be pulling? It's not an expedition. Uh, you've got everything and lots of goods uh, for every occasion and it is 200 kilograms. I will carry absolute minimum. I mean about 30 kilograms of food, fuel to my stove and the accessory uh, clothing and it, it has to be enough just to, to run to, to keep the pace. I intend to make about 80 kilometers per day. It would be fantastic if I could end in Fairbanks in 20 days, but if I will finish in 30 days, it will be still something amazing just to finish the, the distance. But the main reason I do this is not the, the race itself, it's not a sport. I'm collecting the money for the dogs from, from the shelters. For each mile, kilometer covered by me, you can donate some money uh, for the dogs. I mean, you decide, is it one cent, one dollar or twenty dollars? It's absolutely up to you. Just the idea is I just run, I just cover the miles and you declare some money for each mile and then all this money collected together will be used for the dogs from the Polish shelters. So so if you were to run the whole thing, which is 1,600 kilometers, and if somebody donated one cent, it would actually be $16. Yes, and that's why I'm just willing to ask you, take part in this action, just uh, be proud donor, help the dogs. This is not much uh, for you, and it will be huge help for the animals. Right. If we'll do this together, it will be really something something great. Now, why dogs, Michal? You know, look at our history. In whole history, the dog was the closest human's ally, the closest friend. The, the dog was uh, guarding for the man. The dog was guiding him. The dog was running for him, like those dogs in the, the, the dog sleds. So now I decided it's time to in some symbolic way to say thank you, thank you to the dogs. Now it's the time just for human to run for the dog. You've been now in, um, in Whitehorse for almost a week and you're getting ready to start in four days. So what are you doing in terms of preparations now? Some logistics is the most important, I mean the equipment. Some parts of equipment I, I took with me, flying by plane, but some, some parts of equipment were traveling by cargo and they were lost. <laughs> so I was, uh, during this week, first of all, I was searching for the lost equipment. We found it. It is, I would say, in one piece. So everything should be okay, but we've got some delay. So um, except with the, uh, some training, I'm now focused on, on preparing the stuff, preparing the equipment, preparing the transition areas uh, where uh, I will have to add some food to my bulk, some fuel or change the clothes. And you don't even have a tent with you, from what I understand. Uh, this is what I said before. I have uh, um, the idea is to carry as little as possible. Uh, I mean everything which is not 
absolutely necessarily will be thrown away from the park just to uh, let me keep the pace and keep uh, cover the distance every day that's why i decided not to carry the tent i've got wonderful sleeping bag it's up to minus 45 degree uh, heavy because the sleeping bag itself is 2.3 kilo it is something absolutely amazing made in poland by payak and I suppose it should be enough uh, for these conditions. Taking into consideration uh, when if you have minus 20 or minus 30, uh, the tent is uh, something you, you really don't need. Uh, I've got some cover, some shelter against wind, but uh, there will be no rain, no snow in such conditions. I just take off the bag with my gear from the pulk sled and then it becomes my bed and I lie in, inside the park and with this with the sleeping bag and and try to try to relax right now what are the biggest challenges I mean I would imagine it's probably temperature yeah the, the temperature will be the, the main issue the main factor the amplitude of temperature can can kill here uh, I mean, it is very difficult, uh, almost impossible to be prepared for the temperatures between zero and minus 50. If the temperature is between it, I mean, uh, in the middle, like minus 20, minus 30, and it is constant, this is much easier to, to prepare your stuff, your clothes, your, your food. But when it varies up, down, up, down, it is, it is really very difficult and this is one of my main concerns. Of course, the tiredness, some accidents during the way, you, you can break your arm or your leg. This is like on the street, you know, you, you <laughs> come out of the house, close the door and you, you don't know what happens next. The meetings with animals, the overflow, it means water on the lakes because the ice is so heavy that it breaks and the water comes with big pressure to the surface. And uh, you've got these small light lakes about 100, 200 meters, half meter uh, deep, but you have to uh, go through. And there is, this is minus 30 around. So this is the problem. The, these are these logistics problems I've got to solve right now. And there is a lot, a lot of other things, but it would be very, very long list. Well, what about animals? You mentioned animals. Which animals are really dangerous? There are no polar bears there. Uh, no, no, no. Polar bears, no. The, these are some grizzlies, but uh, hopefully they, they sleep where it's minus 30 degree. They are not as crazy as me just to uh, have a walk uh, with these temperatures. The rangers here in Whitehorse told me to take care and special attention to the moose. Moose can be very dangerous when you close to him because he, the wolves are uh, the natural enemies of, of moose and, and the moose doesn't dis distinguish the wolves and the dogs. And the dogs have some bond with the humans. So for the moose, human is, is also uh, some enemy. So if I see moose, I have to step back and wait until he is gone. This is the advice. And I will follow the advice. Okay, so you're starting on Wednesday, the 1st of February, and uh, we can watch you on, like, we can watch live how you're moving. How is this going to be done? 
Okay, the, there is the webpage. Uh, be in English, it is randoc.pl, and at this web webpage you can see all the data about me, all the info about the project, all the info about foundation and the bank account. You can donate the money, and of course will be the live button, and you be able to to see live what's my uh, what's my position and how fast I move. So if we're listening to this on the 4th of February, the next time we have podcast, you will ho hopefully be done and triumphant and happy and not too tired, I hope. Well, listen, all the best to you. And we wish you a lot of money and a lot of fantastic time and very few moose and very few wolves on the way. Okay, take care. Thank you. Thank you very much. Please visit our website, mypolcast.com, to see photos, get more information, but most importantly, to join the campaign and donate to support Michał's run and to help shelter dogs in Poland. You have been listening to the 39th episode of Polcast. Polcast is created, recorded and produced in Toronto by... Małgorzata Bonikowska and Tomek Kniat. For full-length interviews, visuals and a lot of additional information, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. We're always curious about your reactions, comments and suggestions. Also, ideas for the news stories. Please share them on our website, mypolcast.com. The Polish Independence Concert in Canada was dedicated to the military service of Poles in foreign armies fighting for the freedom of other countries. We talked about one of its earliest documented cases. And we will leave you with medieval Polish music, Gaude Mater Polonia, the Latin title meaning Rejoice, O Mother Poland, probably the most popular medieval Polish anthem, written in the 13th or the 14th century, in memory of St. Stanisław Szczepanowski, Bishop of Kraków, Polish knights used to sing it after victory in battle. <laughs>